0: It's time to get started, Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're headed. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Father, when we consider that you are here and you have given us this living word that's alive, it is sent from heaven to open our hearts to the truth that sets us free. God, we don't want to miss a thing. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, God, with... Lord, your hard-hitting words to drive us to yourself, to bring us to love, grace, and to want to be saved, to sense that we need to be saved, God. Thank you for these words. We pray for insight provided by your Holy Spirit that we might hear, understand, and obey, and be blessed. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. When I was in the fifth grade, like a lot of the guys here, I was in the Cub Scouts for a short little while, which I really enjoyed. You know, the den meetings and the, all the outdoor activities. Mine, it was a blast, but it wasn't all fun and games, for sure. There was a point to being a Cub Scout, and I remember the oath. i I've written it down here. On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and serve my country and to obey the scout law to help other people at all times to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. <laughs> Are you thinking that that could be outlawed today? I don't know. I don't know. There's something wrong with it. Not anyway. The, my point is the the point the whole point of being a a Cub Scout or a Boy Scout was to do good deeds. Um, and even the small ones we were told, there's nothing too small uh, to count as a good deed. And they gave you a list. Even giving a nickel to charity, to giving your seat up for somebody, to pick up even a banana peel. Off the street was a good deed. And let's not forget the proverbial classic, helping a little old lady, what? Across the street. You know where we get that saying from? From the scouts. Yes, indeed. And so, blossoming up from that in American culture is part and parcel of our culture is this doing good deeds it's the secular version of how you get to heaven doing good deeds the gospel without the lord and really a misconceived notion at that as well-intentioned as as good deeds are Um, the thought is by doing good deeds, you prove that you're basically a good person and surely a good person. One day when you die, you will go to heaven. It's all about your good deeds. That's the world's understanding for the most part. It's the understanding of the Pharisees who are listening to Jesus in the crowd, and for sure, many of those who were in the crowd. Be a good Jewish person and wind up in heaven. And that's what many churchgoers think, too. It's all about the good deeds. But that's not what Jesus thinks. Oh, and and Jesus is going to uh, set about in his sermon to crush that wrong thinking because if you think you're basically a good person, if you think you're keeping all the commandments uh, correctly, then you have no need for a savior. You have no need to cry out that your sins be forgiven because you're basically a good person. So the Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that God has done the good work uh, for us, and that whoever so, uh, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So it's a whole other way to get to heaven, nothing to do with good deeds. And Jesus is going to really drive that home by pulling out the commands and saying, you may think of this commandment this way on the surface, technically, like you, you have kept this command technically, But let's talk about what God meant when he gave the command, the spirit of it. And let's take a closer look at your heart and see what's going on on the inside. Because we are responsible to God. Even the commandments address what's going on in our thoughts and in the privacy of our own hearts. And so that's a new thought for them. But you know what? Jesus is not being a big meanie here. So just as we dive in, I just want you to know the Lord of love, who doesn't want anybody to perish, but everybody to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. He's doing this in love to help people to be saved, to come to him and receive the forgiveness and being right with God that only he can provide. So let's take a look as he gets underway, bringing out the commandments and start talking about the Old Testament. So he says there in verse 17 of chapter 5, Matthew, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. let's just stop right there and let me define that for you. The law, technically, Torah in Hebrew, it meant to the Jews the first five books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's what they meant. It's called the Pentateuch, all right? And the prophets was the rest of the Old Testament. But... It was a common way just to say the whole Old Testament. You could say the law and you meant the Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Or you could say the prophets and mean the same thing. Or you could say the law and the prophets. So when Jesus is speaking here, you can substitute in your mind Old Testament. And that's exactly what he's talking about. Do not think that I've come to abolish the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the Old Testament until everything is accomplished. And anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches reveres these commands Will Be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the, the long robed teachers, and the pious scribes of the law, the Old Testament, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying there must be another way other than keeping commands because that was their full time job. Now he's going to go on to list six. Commands from the Old Testament and say, hey, some people think of it this way, but I tell you, think of it this way. And the first of them is thou shalt not murder. And we can't get to all six. We're only going to get to the first one. And so here it is. You have heard that it was said by people long ago, 1,500 years to be exact, when Moses lived, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Got it. Old Testament commandment number six. Uh, Verse 32. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, I'll explain that, is answerable to the Jewish Supreme Court, Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. He has got the crowd's attention, folks. Verse 23. Therefore, in light of what I just said, if you're offering your gift, you're at church... You're worshiping the Lord, but you remember that your brother or sister in the Lord has something against you. Leave your gift there. That's how important this is in front of the altar. First go, and as far as it's concerned with you, get reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come and offer your gift. And... Practically speaking, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. If it's gotten that bad that now there's litigation, do it while you're still on the way to the court. Or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer. And guess what? You you may be doing some prison time. Verse 26. I tell you the truth. You won't get out until you've paid the last penny, which is an idiom to mean you never get to that last penny. You don't have that last penny. And so instead of imprison yourself, there's a practical sense and a spiritual sense that he's talking about that we'll see. He's saying resolve matters quickly. Don't let things go on spiritually between you and God as an unbeliever and physically, practically, socially with those who you are in uh, butting heads with, uh, shall we say. All right, so we're going to go back here and dive in now to the first thing. Two ideas here as we get situated. The first one that you're looking at, the first paragraph, is the authority of the Old Testament. And really, the authority of all scriptures, no matter what you think of their importance. The, and all scripture is God-breathed and is to be used for correction and rebuke and to train us in what kind of life God requires. And so the authority of the scriptures and the Old Testament is in mind. And then that second paragraph, of course, is the spirit behind the commands of God. It's never just about Uh, outward observance in an external way. He always looks to the heart. And Paul the Apostle will say in Romans chapter two and verse four, on that day when Christ appears, he will judge the secrets of men's hearts. And so, yeah, God wants to make sure that we understand it's not just checking a bunch of boxes and saying, technically, I look good on paper. He says, well, let's go inward and check you out there and see how well you do. And he's hoping you will be aghast. He's hoping that you'll be terrified and just say, oh, dear God, I need some grace. I need mercy. I need a savior. And then he'll say, come to me. All who are weary and heavy burden, right this way. I love you and I got a plan for you, but I couldn't get you here without convincing you that you can't do it on your own, okay? So we're going to dive in here with the authority of the Old Testament because God knows that as soon as you start telling people grace and there's a new covenant and a new arrangement, he knows us. He knows that we're going to have a tendency to say, well, then no moral laws count anymore because they can't condemn me because Christ fulfilled them. So he wants to bring clarification in light of the coming of the Messiah who fulfills the Old Testament. How should Christians think of the Old Testament? And it seems like Jesus thinks that we should think more seriously about the Old Testament than most Christians and most pastors teach amen all right so we're diving in and there it is right before you jesus in the old testament here to stay the old testament from jesus point of view here to stay until the very end until heavens and the earth pass away which will happen and at that time uh, all of god's plans in the scriptures will have come to pass but until then old testament Up and running, binding and important. Now, it's no surprise to any of you who hear me talk about the Old Testament uh, that Jesus is so um, wanting to let us know that it's permanent, it's eternally significant, relevant and valuable to us. 855 times... The New Testament quotes the Old Testament. So really Christianity in all of its glory is really a product of the Hebrew Scriptures. It is the uh, Hebrew Scriptures are the embryo of the Christian life. It's not like two different things. It's the bulb, and then there's Christianity, the blossom. And so he's trying to get people to see that all Scripture is God-breathed, right? So Jesus knew there'd be a temptation, as I said, a first-century talk of a Messiah. They knew there was a new covenant coming. In the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, it says in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, that a new covenant was coming, that it was gonna be inward, not outward. He said, oh, things are gonna change. I'm gonna change your heart of stone. I'm gonna put a new spirit in you. And now you're gonna not only want to obey my commands, you'll finally have the ability to actually obey them, not to save you, but because you've been saved, and now they're well loved by you, and they're the way to bring blessings. So Jesus is saying, Uh, no doubt there's some confusion because he's been saying there's a new way to be thinking about some of these commands and no doubt they're going to change in their application toward the Christian for sure because he tells us he completes them or he fulfills them. And he's been hinting around that the transition to a new way of thinking about the Old Testament, a new way of thinking about it, not devaluing it, not destroying it, and not his words in verse 17, to abolish it, to unravel it, to discard it. No, he's been saying things like, oh, by the way, it's not what goes in a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of his mouth. And by saying that, he said, all foods are clean. Why? To kosher Jews. Right, who have dietary laws in the Old Testament. So there was a bit of confusion and a bit of slander. They accused him, this guy is anti-Moses, just like they did to Paul with the Christian message. He's anti-Moses, he's anti-law, he's anti-King David, he's just a rebel and he's coming in and he's trampling all, of our, all over our Jewish heritage. And he says, oh no, no, don't believe that for a minute. Don't think I came to toss the Old Testament out on its heels. I didn't come to dismantle it or annul it, but to fulfill it. So here's what he's saying. The whole Old Testament, and it's a big ticket item. He's saying the whole Old Testament is complete in me. It was talking about me. It's about me. So from now on, when you look at the Old Testament to understand it fully, you have to understand it in light of Jesus' person and his work as the redeemer on a cross and then the Old Testament is still up and running it's still relevant it's still significant but only to be understood by the one who completes it now when he says he fulfills it he's saying it's all about me from the beginning you know he'll say you know the manna that came down the bread from heaven that's actually a picture of me I come down from heaven and give myself as like bread of heaven whoever eats of that bread will never die but he says, You remember the rock that followed the Israelites? Wherever they were, there was this rock, and he commanded Moses to take his staff and strike it. And from being struck out from the injury, bled, if you will, living water. Right? So Christ is the rock when he was pierced. Out of his side flowed living water. Of course, the living water that washes us clean from our sins. So he's saying that the entire Old Testament, I could go on. There's hundreds of those pictures. He's just saying the prophecies, the Bible characters, the holidays, the holy days. They all find their culmination in Jesus. Come on, Passover. All right. Death is coming, he says on Passover. He says, here's what I want you to do. Find a lamb, spotless lamb, then sacrifice that for your sins. Put that blood on the doorposts of your homes. So when the spirit of death comes calling, the spirit of death says, oh, there's been a death for sins. Oh, I'm gonna pass over. No need to strike anybody under this roof because under this roof, the blood tells death, hey, You're irrelevant here because been there, done that. Sins have been paid for. And then he says on the night of Passover, he times it. So he's at the table on Passover. And he says the night he's betrayed, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So what he's saying here is, listen, folks. It was all about me. It's not about the, the text itself, it was pointing to me, when he tells the uh, Pharisees that all the time. By the way, Jesus never broke an Old Testament law. Never. He broke the, the perverted interpretations that the rabbis had. So for example, the rabbi said, well, the Lord says no work on the Sabbath. So let us tell you what he means by that. Right, So the rabbis today tell you, you will not use your phone. You will not uh, push an elevator button because you're starting a fire. They weren't allowed to light a fire and do the cooking and all of that. So the rabbis and the Pharisees would say things like, if you can temporize it, no pushing the elevators. In Israel, they have Sabbath elevators so that you don't have to. They open the doors and go to every floor so that you don't have to break the law of God. By lighting a fire, by starting an electrical impulse, by pressing the number five to go to the fifth floor. Jesus came to break that nonsense. You know, I'll give you one more. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, because they're so, they're almost funny. So the command was, don't take a journey on the Sabbath. You stay at your family and you rest and you have worship and all of that. And so the rabbis, the, the Pharisees, they said, let us tell you what he meant by journey. It's a thousand feet. <laughs> so, so they said, to help you, and for 10 shekels, we will measure out a rope, a little twine, to help you with a thousand uh, steps. So you can, on the Sabbath, you have your holy twine, and you take your holy twine in your pocket, and every step you take, you let it out. You know, you just let it out. And when you're at the end of that, you know, whoa, one more step. And, you know, you've broken the command. So Jesus came on the scene and said, put your ropes away. Because that's silly. Right? And they said, we're going to kill you for that. What do you mean breaking the commands of God? And so there was a host of those kinds of things, which in our study of Matthew, we will find. And so he says, don't think I came to break the law. I came to fulfill it. And so verse 18, uh, let me tell you, let me show you. He's going to say, yes, we have a new relationship with the law. And here's, here's what it looks like. There's three ways to think of Old Testament law as a Christian. Ceremonial law is Judaism. It's the religious law. It's all pictured what Jesus would come. The the sacrifices you would have to offer, but we don't need to be offering a lamb or a goat for our sins and, and expect to trust in its blood to change us and transform us and forgive us. We have the lamb of God. So check, the religious laws are fulfilled in him, right? The civil law. There were uh, laws for the nation of Israel. Well, we are not the nation of Israel. We're called the church. So check, those do not apply to us. We don't trash them. We don't disrespect them. They've been fulfilled, all right? Now, the moral law. (laughs) There's hundreds of things which appear in the New Testament in the list of vices to avoid make sure you put to death the misdeeds of the body, and it names anger and lust and greed and covetousness. All of that is only found rooted in the Old Testament. So he's saying the Old Testament and the moral laws, and though Christ fulfilled the moral law for us, he gives it to us free, right? It cannot condemn us anymore, but which is good news. But it doesn't mean they're not important. And so the mistake comes with, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace, which you are. Therefore, and here's the mistake, then it doesn't matter how I live so much. I mean, the big things, yeah, I understand. But then we have a tendency, and that's why am speaking. To, kind of, to find the least commandments and disregard them and say they don't really count because I'm under grace. So he knew he would think like that. So we can go back to the uh, scriptures and, and take a look at that. He says in verse 19, they're, they're, well, first of all, he says, not till heaven and earth disappear or till uh, all has been accomplished. Well, Jesus said from the cross, it's accomplished it's finished right so in that regard there go the ceremonial religious laws check right and then he says till heaven and earth disappear well that means at the second coming at the end of the millennial kingdom there's a new heaven new heavens i should say sun moon and stars and a new earth where it's impossible to sin there's no devil there's no there's no sinful nature Right? And so all things will have been accomplished. But the moral law, the moral law, he's saying, hangs in there. So all of that scripture, there's there are people who say, I don't open to the old testament. I don't read the old testament. Oh, I don't preach on the old testament. And and the Lord says, That's too bad, because when you get to heaven, you will have diminished honor because of your attitude of lightness. And disregard for what you would call the least of the commands. And so we'll take a look at that. He says in verse 19. Now those who break or set aside the least of these commands. Now Jesus is, he's a pragmatist. He's saying, I understand that some commands are are more weightier than others. But there's a tendency to look at the less significant commands as not binding, and something we can be careless about. And so uh, he says, whoever disregards such commands and teaches others, not only by your word, but by how you're living, you're impacting others to live sloppy lives, careless, to abuse grace, and not care about a commandment because you're under grace or whatever other misconceived notion you have for the reason of disregarding the commands of the living God. He says, if you're saved and do that and wind up in heaven, just know you will not be as honorable there as those who uh, had a, a trembling at my word, he calls it. He says, I am the God who created all things, Isaiah 60. Six, He says, these are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at my word, who revere it. He says, I I show them favor and that favor is going to show up in heaven where Christians mistakenly think that we're all equal and we all get saved the same way, which is true. But based on our stewardship of our Christian lives, God will judge us and either reward us or that reward will be lacking. Let me show you what I'm talking about. I can support this with the scriptures and in the New Testament. All right, so by the grace God has given Paul, he's speaking, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it but each one should be careful how he builds. He's saying, I preach the gospel and I lay Jesus Christ as the foundation in all of your hearts, all right? Now it's time for you to build on that and others have come in and watered the work and they're helping you build your Christian life. This is what he's talking about. For no, There's no other foundation other than Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, and costly stones, that means, wow, effort. A little sacrifice, a lot of prayer, a lot of telling yourself no, a lot of repentance, a lot of picking up a bloody cross and following him, even though you don't want to. It's revering even the little insignificant commands in the New Testament, the moral, ethical ones. There's hundreds of them. And doing them and teaching others hey, man, you know, let's talk about some of the little. Insignificant uh, commands. Uh, To attend church regularly is a command in the New Testament. Hebrews 10.25. To keep a tight rein on your tongue. Not to gossip. Not to covet. Not to be envious of people. Not to say mean things about people. That's not a suggestion in the New Testament. It's in command form. And Jesus says, He who loves me will keep my commands, their commands. But we see them, oh, you know, who doesn't kind of fudge the truth here and there? Who doesn't blow off a little steam here and there? Who doesn't do whatever you want to call the least of the commands? And Jesus is saying, that kind of thinking is wood, hay, and stubble. And that work will be tested on the day God judges Christians at what's called the, Christian, the judgment seat of Christ, it will be revealed with fire, and fire will test the quality of each person's work. And so nobody ends up perishing at the end of this judgment. It's eternal life. You're not condemned. You're just judged righteously according to your gifts, your abilities, your talents, your time, your handicaps, your dysfunctional family. He puts it all in and he comes out with, this is what you could have done. This is what you did. This was your attitude. And therefore, you come out either. He says, if what has been built survived, you're going to get reward. That comes in honor That comes in responsibility in the coming kingdom to reign with him, positions of authority in this next life. Serious stuff. But if it's burned up, it it was just, you know, careless living, sloppy stuff, a lot of sinning, you know? The builder will suffer loss, and yet he himself will be saved, even though as only one escaping through the fire. So here you go. Here's a new thought for a lot of Christians, you know? How you live, how you think, what you do, what you say matters, and we are accountable for it, and our attitude toward the commands of God in the Bible, whether we say, well, whatever, I'm covered by grace, and I'm just going to, whatever, just kind of, yeah? He says, do you want to shine bright? Now, when you get there, and there's going to be degrees, and there will be, of course, Oh, some Christians really, really try hard and they're dedicated and they're devoted and they're working at it and others are lazy and careless and abuse grace and get away with a lot of stuff, but not on that day, he says. So of course the Christian who has worked at it and took the walk seriously and trembled at the word, the little things like let no let no profane word let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth it's a command Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 let not one bad word come out of your mouth it's a command So the person who says, hey, that's a command. God, I just repent of that. Help me. I'm going to pay attention to my words from now on. I'm not going to just say, you know, is it even a cuss word? It's not even a cuss word. You know, you'll stay so far away from anything that looks like a cuss word because what you tremble at the, the, the New Testament command, don't let one unwholesome. Could it come under unwholesome? Well, my whole point for hanging out on one little insignificant least of the commands is is that that's Jesus' point, is that we like to say, well, it's not that important. Jesus says, okay, that kind of attitude will translate into eternity for you. So you might want to rethink how you think, uh, what you think about those commands. So... Saved as though by fire. Here, here's what. last thought here. Nobody's going to be up there going, oh, gee whiz, look at him. He, oh, he, look at me. And I feel terrible. And I, I just, you know, skulking around heaven like, oh, poor me. You know, <laughs> I, I, I didn't know how miserable I would be. You know, no. <laughs> you get there. You see what God says. Hey, this, this is right about you. This is how. You're going to go, wow, you nailed it wow, that was right. That is perfect. And about everybody. And everybody will be happy with each other's successes or that you're even just there if you're not, right? If if you're just there. I mean, most people are just like, I'm here. I'm just happy to be here, amen, right? And so my point is, is that uh, in our thinking, we can't imagine what heaven could be with some got more than others, Right? Well, it will be so perfectly and such divine, equitable uh, quality that you will, be, <laughs> you will be singing his praises and happy about the diminished reward uh, because it'll be so right on. So moving on, uh, we are now going to take a look at... Uh, now, now here's, here's where he's going to clear some things up. He's going to say, okay, there's a great (laughs) emphasis on obeying the laws of God. That's what he just said. But never for your salvation. So don't misunderstand me. You know, uh, I'm going to bring out the commands now and show you that you can't keep commands to justify yourself before God. We keep the commands because they're beautiful and wonderful and and we've been forgiven and they're the right things to do. And so we do them and they count in eternity for us toward reward or lack thereof. So they're important still. And so now he's gonna say to those in the crowd who say, well, I've kept the commands and I'm, I'm pretty good at this stuff, you know. So let's take a look at that. So basically he's gonna start off by contrasting and comparing uh, one way of looking at the command, do not murder, the sixth commandment, and then uh, what he really uh, meant by that, right? So here we go. Uh, You've heard it said, you know, uh, technically on paper, you know, don't actually... uh, pull the trigger. All right, but I tell you anybody who's angry, you're, already, you're headed toward trouble and anger is kind of the seed of a murderous spirit. So you have to be where and it's culpable. You're responsible before before God under the same command, whether you physically do it or you're doing it in your heart. And so let's talk about that. So he's saying, you've heard it said 1,500 years ago by those people uh, that they understood murder as cold-blooded premeditated act, which it is, which is condemned, right? But he says they stopped right there. That's the problem. Now, now here's what he says. Let's go deeper. Jesus says. Now, this will blow your mind if you're not thinking about it. He says, but I say to you. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, God said. (laughs) And here's the understanding. Don't commit murder. But let me tell you what I meant when I gave that to Moses. That's exactly what he's doing. And that's why they want to pick up stones to stone him. Because of his authority. They were astonished by it. Remember in John 7. This, the bad guys, the religious leaders, send out uh, guards to go arrest Jesus. And they come back empty handed. And the, the Sanhedrin goes, Hey, where is he? We sent you out on a mission. What are you coming back empty handed for? And, and they say, John chapter 7 Have you ever heard him? Have you ever heard him speak? Because he talks like nobody else in the whole world, right? Because he's God wrapped in human flesh. So out of his mouth is coming the unfiltered words of the living God who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. That's who's talking. So he's having, uh, definitely, he's having an impact. And so he's saying what the, what the command means is don't murder. It doesn't mean don't kill. And it doesn't mean don't uh, self-defense. It's not including that. He's saying premeditated murder is the word in Hebrew. And it's including, Jesus saying, when God gave that, when I gave that, we were including the hate, the rage, the slander, the greed, anything that leads to the intent to injure another. It's a direct violation of patience and love and mercy and meekness. It's the seed to violence and, and murder itself. And then he says, you will subject, you're subject to judgment for that kind of anger, God's judgment, right? So let's take a look now. Judgment clearly is God's here. And the two illustrations he says is when this festering anger not anger that kind of sometimes is called for. He does caution us and say there is a a right kind of anger that makes sense, but you better be careful with it. He says, "Do not let, do not sin when you're angry. Do not let it get to a place of sin, and uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let anger." Be carried over the account into the next day because it's dangerous. Because if you have the festering kind that begins to want to see harm come to somebody else, now you're you're on the path to thou shalt not murder, and you're beginning to sin in such a way that's worthy of hell. Actually, he's going to say so. The first word he says is is raka. It means empty, and it's kind of a kind of a. Uh, cuss word, uh, semi-pseudo cuss word in Aramaic, uh, that just means empty or like calling somebody an idiot. And then he ups it to moros in the Greek, which is where we get the word moron, that you fool. And so he says, <laughs> I know, I know. And, and we do it a lot. I mean, we do it a lot. And, and sometimes you're just doing it in jest, but other times you're not. And so here's what he's saying. He's not saying, if you call somebody a fool, you're going to hell because of that. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, that kind of sin of anger and malice is worthy to be punished as a sin in hell. That's what he's saying. He's certainly not saying, like I've heard taught, well, you're a murderer then, if you call someone uh, by a pejorative term like that. That's ridiculous. There's a big difference between being angry or hating somebody and actually killing them. Now, if you have those two options, I would prefer you just be angry with me. (laughs) I I think there's a difference. There's a difference, people. He's just saying, watch out for this because it is a sin worthy of God's judgment and it does take unrepented sinners to a place of torment, of punishment. So yeah, he's saying technically you didn't pull the trigger but what have you done with your mouth? You've assassinated somebody who's been created in the image of God and for whom Christ shed his blood and you are going to take out the, the, the scalpel and the sword of your tongue and tear them from shred to shred. It doesn't matter if you think they're worthy of it. He's just saying Uh, That is a sin. And so he says two dramatic uh, calls to action. If you get caught up in this, the first one as we go on here uh, is to benefit you uh, spiritually, right? He's saying when you're out of sorts and you're, you're involved, it has interrupted your relationship with God, the fellowship part. And Christians love to, I'm sorry, have all kinds of problems with people and leave it unresolved from what their end could do. They could apologize. They could make amends and all of that. But instead, they divide life into two different areas, me and God in church, and then how I live with people in relationships. And God says, not how I see it. So when you come to worship me, I want your love for me to be reflected in how you treat people who I created in my image for whom I died. And so if you come to church and you're ready to lift your hands and get all into it and all of this, and it comes to mind to you that you need to apologize for your harsh words, for the way that you caused all kinds of problems and you haven't eaten the humble pie, which is the worst kind of pie ever. <laughs> it tastes like dirt. <laughs> and you have to eat it, and you have to know, you know, you know, you're apologizing for a little bit more than you really technically have to, but that's not the point. Jesus says, your relationship with God is stalled. Your prayers are hindered by the way you're being inconsiderate of other people. He told husbands in First Peter chapter 3. Husbands, have you noticed that your prayers aren't really going anywhere? That you're kind of stuck spiritually? He says, your prayers are hindered, sir, by the way you're treating your wife. And wives, do not think that there's no reciprocity there. It goes both ways. If you think you can live, Unsubmitted and disrespectful, and say terrible things about your husband and think terrible things, and then come to church and oh, it's just me and Jesus and God and the grace. God says, Repent, both of you. Get right as far as it can, it depends on you. You can't help people who, you can't help a situation where they don't want anything to do with that, but you have your end. So he says, if you remember, somebody needs a word from you, needs to be paid back, needs for you to eat some dirt, you need to go stop. He says, you know how important it is? Leave church. And one writer said, can you imagine if all the Christians who read this, (laughs) who needed to go straighten something out, the pews would be empty. (laughs) They would be empty because you just think, oh, it's okay. They deserve it. Let them let him chew on that another day. And Jesus says, when you're talking to me, I'm not listening right now. Until you show me the respect to obey what I asked you to do. Fix that. Then come and offer your gift Oh, your worship would be way sweet. You'll just gonna see things popping around in your life because what? You esteem God's word as worth your while and worth uh, the rigor and the humbling uh, action that you need to take. And so the second one is more practical with a spiritual twist on the end. So the second one is how we close up today. He says... Go and be reconciled with your brother. Now he's saying, now if things get so bad that you're actually (laughs) going to court with your opponent, he says, here's some advice. Whatever's going on in a bad relationship, when it gets bad, I want you to resolve the matter as soon as you can. Sooner is better. To leave things, it always gets worse. Why let it fester? Why let it go on? Do your part. And so let's say you're on the way to the courtroom, go ahead and just eat the dirt. Pull them aside and say, hey, look, you know, I want to say sorry for my part in this whole mess. You know what? I did and said some things of blah, blah, blah. You know how humble pie goes, right? (laughs) That's what you do because you don't want to get to the courtroom and lose and pay. And then here's what he's saying. When you don't resolve matters, you put yourself in a prison of bitterness and anger and hate. And it taints and it spills over to where you come home from work. And you kick the cat. And you, you know, you, you're angry with the kids. And you're Because you're unresolved. You're in that prison. He says, get out of that prison. Proverbs 6 says this. When you realize that there's a mess there. And you could do something about it. He says, number one, put your hand over your mouth. Whoa, this is serious. And then he says, allow no sleep. To your eyes. Go. Humble yourself. Make it right. Quickly. Quickly, he says. That's important. Don't let bad relationships on your end. As much as you can do. We have a saying here. It's not in my notes. Surprise. about baking a pie for somebody because one time somebody got uh, their feelings hurt or something and somebody baked them a pie and went over and just said, you know, I'm a loser. I'm sorry that, you know, this all, this whole thing happened and it just was so beautifully received and such beauty came from it and healing and things were better off after. God turned it into a good blessing. You know, can you bake a lemon meringue pie? Can you find out? Can you just give them a gift card and say, can you just reach out? That's how you should live. Why? Because it's one of the least of Jesus' commands, maybe in your mind. Take it to heart, do it. and then here's every commentator says, and by the way, it has a spiritual twist that God, for those who have not availed themselves of the forgiveness in Christ, they have sins against God. He's the opponent, and he's suing, and you're on your way to court. It is appointed unto men and women once to die, and then the judgment, Hebrews chapter nine verse 27. So you're on your way, and that and your opponent. Your adversary, God, who's got a list a mile long about the things you owe him, which you're refusing to come to the payment plan, Christ, and and enjoy his forgiveness and love. Instead, you're going to self-pay plan. He says, while you're on your way to the courtroom, which we all are, make peace with him. Accept the peace he's brokered while you're on your way. Because when you're in the courtroom, you're dead. To stand before the court of God, you're you're in your spiritual body. (laughs) It's over. Amnesty and all that God has promised is no longer applicable because you waited to when everybody has faith when they die (laughs) because they can see. So it's until the last heartbeat, Jesus says, make amends with your adversary. And turn him from adversary to father, to Abba, father. So two takeaways for this morning. Number one, let's take God's words and commands more seriously. And number two, let's guard our hearts more closely. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Now, Father God, we take these tough words and we ask you to apply them to our hearts, God. And they draw us to you, Lord, because we're, we're guilty as charged. We're all, we're all screaming, oh, I'm guilty of that. Oh, I'm guilty of that. Oh, I do that, Lord. I do uh, a lot. I fall into these things. So we all do, God. So we come into your presence. We're drawn to you, God. You're, you're all we need. You have what we need, the cleansing and the reconciling power Lord, to make us new. You say the righteous man or woman falls seven times, but gets up. And so we want to get up, God, and experience your joy and your forgiveness. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to The Rock's podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.